The Irish Times Inside Politics podcast is going to be holding another live event. This one is in central Dublin on Thursday, May the 16th at 8am. We are going to be in Medley in Dublin too. We only have a few tickets left, so if you want to join me in conversation with head of Ipsos polling in the US, Cliff Young, along with Pat Leahy and Jennifer Bray, looking at the polling in Ireland in the run-up to the European and local elections, just go to irishtimes.com events where you can get your tickets. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. It's Friday, January the 27th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan, and here to join me to wrap up the political week are Jennifer Bray and Cormac McQuinn. Hello to you both. Good afternoon. Morning, Hugh. I suppose... Cormac, we can only start with one subject, even though I think on reflection, we're all starting to decide, if we hadn't decided earlier, that it wasn't really a terribly important subject. And that is Pascal Gate, Poster Gate, Donoghue Gate, whatever, Stone Gate, whatever you want to call it. Uh, putting the word gate after it makes it seem even more absurd. I kind of feel this is all a bit ridiculous at this point. There's a part of me that feels about this story that, you know, everyone makes mistakes. Pascal Donoghue has made mistakes in his election returns. Sinn Féin has made mistakes in its election returns. I would be willing to bet that the vast majority of politicians uh, have have small errors here and there in what they've declared as standards in public office commission. Uh, so, I mean, it's it's storming a teacup in a lot of ways, but there are, there are important issues at, at the heart of it, I suppose. You know, it, by rights, everyone should should be filling out their election returns to the letter of the, the rules if people are getting donations from from businessmen, it it should be it should be known. I mean, it, perhaps the the most the most significant thing to come out of this week's uh, coverage of it and uh, Pascal Donoghue's doll statement is that uh, one of the donations or one of the the services provided by the businessman Michael Stone, uh, the use of a van for four hundred and thirty odd euro uh, was two hundred and thirty four euro over the corporate donor limit. Under, you know, there's a threshold of two hundred euro under which they don't have to declare. So that's being returned. That's that. That's actually the most concrete thing that came out of out of all of this. So it, it does shed a light on on the, the the rules around corporate donations and all of that. Having said that, the sums. For, for everything that has been covered about Pascal Donoghue and for Sinn Féin, for that matter, they're all very, very low. It's nickel and dime stuff, you know. Um, it, it, the case of Pascal Donoghue, it's kind of a, a, a thousand-odd euro per election for this postering work, you know, the work carried out by, paid for by, by Michael Stone. For Sinn Féin, you know, it's a opinion poll that they failed to declare. They omitted it due to working from home during covid 
at the cost of about seven thousand euro, two thousand euro of of venue usage during the twenty sixteen election that they that they didn't declare properly, you know, and uh, then then an under declaration of about nine hundred and forty five euro for incorrect. Uh, for incorrect returns they gave to SIPO where they put the, the euro values uh, for, for services that were charged in sterling, you know. So, like, that is, even that, all amounts to less than 10,000 euro in the course of elections where hundreds of thousands of euro are spent by each of the parties. So, you know, a bit of perspective in all of this uh, is is no harm, I think. Uh, and, it, yes, it's good to, 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 to catch these mistakes and to have them corrected for the official record, but I don't think anything in the last... A uh, couple of weeks would have necessitated Pascal Dunhu resigning from his job, and I I don't think uh, anything that's been uncovered by Sinn Fein is particularly egregious either. So, Dan, I, su- I suppose the point then is, I mean, I think anybody looking at these sums of money and the kind of the, the the kind of mistakes that were involved absolutely would agree with Cormac that these things should be corrected and that should all be transparent and visible. But anybody who's worked even for a small to medium sized company and has ever had to deal with a bit of auditing or bookkeeping will be aware that errors of that kind of scale happen sometimes and they and hopefully they will be caught and hopefully they, they will be corrected but they're really not um they're not hanging offenses and it does beg the question about whether there was a disproportionate response both from uh, from opposition politicians in the in the dole and indeed from ourselves in the media I remember when all this kicked off, 10 days ago now, I mean, I was asking about the comparison with the prior departure of Damien English. It seemed to me to be a much more clear-cut case of something which which raised serious questions about something that he had, had done in the past that had, you know, serious political consequences. This is of a different order. Is there something wrong with the way we're able or not able to distinguish between, um, you know, in the words of Father Ted, things that are very small and things that are very far away? Yeah, I I both agree and disagree. So I think that the point you make is accurate. I also had similar feelings at the start of this, the beginning of the story. Um, And now that we have the benefit of hindsight of the week that's just been, we can kind of look at it maybe a bit more dispassionately and say that it wasn't the world's biggest deal. It's not the greatest political controversy. You know, Stephen Collins has a piece in in the Irish Times today where he kind of, I think he describes sometimes media coverage of political controversies as being breathless. And I do actually agree with them to a certain extent in that there can be a tendency to overblow an issue into a full-blown controversy that is only a few steps away from a scandal when it's just not. Um, and I think that that kind of feeds in in some way to this this really 24-hour news cycle narrative that you need answers now and this is the biggest deal and you can't get the answer to the question and this is what happened. On the other hand, what I would say is Pascal Donoghue and Fine Gael created this mess. It was of their own making that they 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 stoked the flames of the fire because at first it kind of seemed like a story, like questions were asked, answers were needed, you know, who paid for these posters. It was a friend of Pascal Donoghue. There's plenty there to explore and I think all of that was legitimate. Then when Pascal Donoghue went into the doll late last week and said that he'd be making a further statement and that was that basically let the thing grow legs all throughout the weekend and people were asking kind of in, in much more sombre tones, what is it that he's going to reveal? Like, how bad could this be? And that's when the question came up, wait, is he really on the ropes here? So they created this problem by announcing there was an issue before actually saying what the issue was. Now, look, now we understand that what had happened was that Michael Stone had, um, I suppose, misremembered and had misinformed Pascal Donoghue and they were trying to get their facts straight. And actually, in the long run, that turned out to be the best thing that they could do. 
because, uh, you know, for him to have had to make a fourth doll statement beyond the third, I think we'd be into really dodgy territory then. But I definitely agree that sometimes, you know, there's a tendency in the media to overblow things. I think we'd kind of keep ourselves in check a little bit. Um, and, you know, I think as well, like, whatever about this story, one of the biggest things that I took away from it, the way we saw it play out during the week was it was all about Fine Gael, it was all about Pascal to answer the questions and talk about corporate donations and, and personal expenses and all that kind of stuff, and that's fine. Then I think because Sinn Féin went into the doll, like studs up basically, I mean, Pierce Doherty was operating on a really high frequency, you know, like he's actually levitating with anger. And the way they kind of gave both barrels to the government, in my view, left them open to questions about their own, you know, funding of their party and their own political expenses. And that's exactly what happened. Then we saw stories in the media in the following days. Well, what about you guys? And now we see in our front page today, if anybody who reads it will see, there's like a whole range of issues. There's spending on the Abu database that there is an actual simple investigation into. There's multiple amendments to their own 2020 and 2016 um, election expenses. Um, And all of that kind of leads people to think, well, you guys are just as bad as them. And actually, it's not a Sinn Féin Fine Gael thing. I guarantee you, if you got if you commission someone to do a piece of work and to go through every politician's expenses in all parties and none, you will find an issue in every single one of them because during an election campaign, it is frantic. Anyone who's covered it or been a politician will understand it is hazy. You one day bl- uh, blends into the next. You're trying to figure out, okay, well, was that the four hundred euro? Yeah, okay, that looks like that grand. Um, some of the things are written down the back of an envelope. I'm not saying that's the way it should be, and absolutely not. But I guarantee you, it's the case. The impression I've come out of it with this week is. You're all being sloppy and you need to get your house in order. So, I mean, that raises a couple of questions, a couple of which we're going to talk about in a, in a, in a minute, Cormac. We can't come to them yet because Stephen Collins does make the point that that sort of coverage of, of politics can have toxic effects on political discourse uh, in general. But just to wrap up this particular subject, there was a kind of a turn of the of the laser beam of media attention towards Sinn Féin, perhaps in reaction to those very strong attacks in the in the doll by, by Pierce Doherty. Did Sinn Féin perhaps slightly overplay their their hand here? Well, you know, they, they may have overblown the issue, but also they did invite some of that scrutiny when we had, in, in, as we revealed last week, instances of Sinn Féin uh, TDs suggesting that the party themselves had uh, discovered that they omitted that opinion poll in the 2020 election. You know, they they actually said that on RT broadcasts. And what, what actually happened was... Uh, we brought it to their attention in December uh, 2021, and it was on, on the foot of that that they went and, and filed a, a SIPO amendment. Just to remind our, our listeners that that was a, a poll which was commissioned by, by Sinn Féin, which they spent €7,000 on, but omitted to declare that, that expenditure. Yes, yeah, that's that's the one, yeah. I mean, so, that, you know, they, they invited the scrutiny in, in a bit when they were claiming that it didn't take journalists for for us to, to correct our mistakes. Well, actually, you wouldn't have known about it if it wasn't wasn't for a bit of journalism, you know. So it's, it, that, it, you know, when you're when when you're going overboard in in attacking one side, uh, you know, and 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 making claims that that don't turn out to be correct, uh, that does that does invite further scrutiny, I think. And, and that we've seen that in the last few days with, with what what has been reported about Sinn Féin's election expenses. 
Yeah, this is a politics analysis rather than a media analysis podcast. But I do wonder, I got a sense from the way the media coverage shifted that perhaps, you know, some elements of the media, perhaps including us, just thought that things had got out of proportion and that one way to address that balance was not to attack Sinn Féin, but to point out, you know, that, as Jen says, these things are not ideal, but they're widespread in the confusion, you know, small errors in the confusion of a, in the midst of an election. Yeah, this is it. I mean, she talks about commissioning someone to do the piece of work. It would be a massive job. And I would I would question the value of doing it, to be honest, if all it's going to turn up is is a, a couple of hundred euro here and there with every other each and every other candidate. I think the, the bigger question is that uh, the, the powers of the watchdog of SIPO of, you know, they've constantly sought uh, better powers, actual teeth, the power to launch investigations themselves. They haven't been provided with that. SIPO is a very, very weak watchdog. And perhaps it, it's that reason that the, the politicians maybe aren't filling out their forms to the uh, to the extent or to the with the amount of care that they should be uh, in the first place. Perhaps if that issue was dealt with, uh, you know, the inaccuracies in election returns might might dwindle. And then there is the point. There is this kind of plague on all their houses. They're all the same. All that kind of of discourse. So it's nearly two weeks now. Uh, Jen, since you wrote that piece about the experiences of female politicians in Ireland, uh, really absolutely horrific experiences of, of many politicians. And I, I think that really struck me about it was how few of these public figures were actually, you know, willing to go on the record to talk to you about their experiences because they knew that that would make things even worse. And that you could point to two examples of of that too. I gather the Cancorla has, has called a meeting to to discuss what might be done about this. Yeah, so he's called a meeting of all female TDs um, and obviously getting all female TDs together is a big ask, but they've kind of identified a date, probably provisionally 22nd of February. And what he's going to do is going to bring them all in, ask them, you know, in as much as they want to, to detail the reality of the issues that they're facing, Um, because many of them even didn't want to talk about it even off the record um, and just said no. So he's going to bring them in and ask them about that. He's going to bring in senior guardi. He's going to bring in a psychologist as well. A psychologist is going to try and explain the the mentality of maybe some of the perpetrators, um, suggestions for how to psychologically deal with it. But that's a very kind of it's it's a very loose meeting, I would say, in that it's it's very open to suggestions and and basically the county court is going to hear out what they say. Looks likely that what will happen after that is they'll set up a task force. Um, or some kind of grouping. It wouldn't be like a committee, so it wouldn't be like on that kind of established kind of footing, but it would have the backing of the Eroctus. So it, it would be all of the, fe- uh, uh, I suppose, a female politician from every party and, and anyone outside, such as independents, and they'll come up with a series of proposals. I'm sure they'll talk to tech companies because the online space is, 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 is one of the major issues. Um, and then they're going to come up with a series of proposals, formal proposals, which I think they'll submit to, to government um, and we'll see what comes of that. And then totally separately to that, well, uh, tied in somewhat, but the um, Oireachtas have also submitted a proposal to the Department of Public Expenditure that would see politicians um, be able to claim up to €5,000 towards the cost of personal security. So that could be, you know, extra alarms, it could be locks, CCTV, all that kind of stuff. Um, and it wouldn't be the full cost of the expense, it would be a contribution towards it. And it would only be given if the Gardaí have recommended that it's necessary. So you can't just go and decide, I'm going to go install CCTV just because um, 
you'd have to have gone to the Gardaí and they'd have to have recommended that. So I think there'll be they I think there'll be a recommendation from or from the Department of Public Expenditure shortly. And one of the things that politicians were really worried about was that people would say, Oh, you're spending taxpayer money on yourself. What about us? What about guards, you know, who are on the front line, etc.? So the Oireachtas, my understanding is they will uh basically put that forwards from their own budget so it wouldn't come from extra funding from the Department of Public Expenditure. Do you think there are women who are deciding not to go into politics or not to continue a political career because of this right now? Yeah, absolutely, I do. And after the piece came out, I got DMs on Twitter and emails and texts from um, female politicians, uh, some of them at a local level, um, who I haven't talked to before, who I wouldn't know. And they were saying that they agree they would they're either genuinely considering pulling out of the job or they have genuinely considered quitting and finding a new job and one of the things that struck me is one of the women I talked to for that piece who hasn't I know Holly Kearns went on the record but this other this other woman I spoke to is part of the five she hasn't gone on the record I don't think she ever will but she's very well known she said to me that she would never recommend it ever again to women you'd be mad I think was the phrase she used and you're completely dehumanized and that shocked me the most because I never expected to hear someone like her saying it. And she would, you know, she she's tough as nails. And I just, that really kind of landed a blow. I was genuinely shocked to hear that. And I think that unless it's addressed, and it's not about like poor politicians, I don't they get it so hard? Like they should absolutely get criticism, really strong, robust. I'm a journalist. I call for that the most of all. Um, but there's a huge line between you know, rape threats and death threats and people turning up at your door. And I do genuinely think if you, if it's not addressed, then we will have less women going into politics, not more. And there's a real imperative this year, now, as we speak on political parties to address it, because obviously the quotas change um, in the next election. And that's all dependent on your, your, your state funding is dependent on it. So political parties themselves are, are kind of waking up to this now and going, we need to do something about this, If even from their own selfish point of view, do you know? Yeah, yeah. I have to be honest about this, Cormac, and when I look at this, I don't think the provision of a few additional security cameras outside your your own home or a panic button that you're able to carry around with you is going to convince somebody that going into politics is, is still a good idea. And we're so much don't have control over some of the key areas and particularly the digital platforms don't have the control we should have, I think I, I think some would argue. But I'd be quite pessimistic about our chances of of really affecting that in any real way. I, d- I don't know what you think. This seems to be something which, you know, we, c- we can talk about, but whether we can propose solutions is another matter. CCTV isn't going to stop somebody showing up on your doorstep, you know. it's uh, It might record what happens, but it's not going to protect you uh, if they're intent on doing you harm. Um, you know, I, I personally think there's there's no, I have no problem with uh, state funding for, for providing a bit more security for politicians, but there's only there's only so much that can do. And uh, I think, I think that, the current, I mean, I read Jen's piece today. It was published. It was last Saturday. It was it was sickening the stuff that that is included in there. You know, we we knew we knew things were bad, but I think that's reinforced how bad things are uh, for particularly for women politicians. Um, I'm I'm not sure what the solution is. I mean, we we've had we've had lots of issues in recent years with you know uh, protesters turning up on the doorsteps of of politicians family homes you know we've had for, we had we've had uh, Sinn Féin TD Martin Kenny had, had had a suspected arson attack on his on his car at his at his home you know after after which which it's believed is linked to 
to a speech he gave on on you know in support of immigrants uh, moving to to County Leitrim. You know, it, 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 these kinds of things would definitely put you off going into politics. We haven't had. Thankfully, uh, instances like we've had in, in Britain with, with the Joe Cox murder, the, the murder of David Amos in recent years. Uh, but but you'd have to suspect it's only a matter of time until some physical harm is, is caused to, to one of our politicians. And it'll be a very dark day when that happens. Some of the things that you um, wrote about in the article, Jen, I read them and I say, why have these people not been prosecuted? It clearly looks like a crime to me. What's getting in the way of that? Is it just is it is it the sheer tortuous nature of trying to track people down via the social media companies or or other ways, or is there a is there a failing in law enforcement that could be addressed in any in any meaningful way? Yeah, so pretty much all the women I talked to, I think all of them actually had in at one stage or another gone to the guards. In some cases, the guards had maybe in in one case he had talked to to the man in question. I think he cautioned him. I think there was a warning in place there. And yet he turned up again afterwards. Um, it's interesting that all the women I talked to were actually very complimentary of the of the guards. And I didn't, I wasn't kind of expecting that beforehand because there was a lot of criticism about that advice that was issued um, from from guards and from the Oireachtas, you know, to TDs to wear um, flat shoes and stuff if they wanted to, comfortable shoes, if they wanted to make a getaway. But actually, there, there's a lot of praise there for the work of the Guardia. I think the biggest challenge is um, online. Uh, it's also tracking the people down like you say, and other times, one of the big things is if a female TD does go down that road and let's say there are charges and let's say it comes up before the court. I mean, we saw Jennifer Carl McNeil and she was rightly praised for kind of going that far with it and, and pursuing it till the end. But that takes a huge mental and physical toll um, on not only on the person, but also their families. And their families are kind of left out of the conversation a bit. But I found it really interesting that a lot of them didn't actually talk about you know, I feel sorry for myself or I feel bad about this or I'm really scared. They're saying my mother-in-law is scared and my daughter is terrified and my husband is telling me to quit. You know, it's their families are hugely impacted. So one of the things I was told was that basically there is a lack of willingness to kind of go all the way with a prosecution or, or a case against somebody um, because it will be made public and you'll have to go through all that in the public arena. And it feeds into the reason why a lot of them didn't want to go on the record, which was because... There was a whole load of different reasons, but one of the big ones was I don't want to look weak and like a victim because when you get into politics, you need to have a tough skin. And I don't want also to also bring even more of this stuff upon myself because then people will say, oh, look at her giving out. And then it just leads to another onslaught. And if people think that's not true, all they have to do is look at Nasa Hurrigan, who went on News Talk to talk about, you know, being spat at and having stuff thrown at her head and being hounded off the Lewis and stuff like that. And underneath the the News Talk tweet, was just dog's abuse. And I'm not saying it was like, I disagree with you, Nasser, or, you know, you're totally wrong or even you're totally effing wrong. It was just like horrendous stuff, like just right there for everybody to see. And it kind of proved the point. And I know a lot of female politicians looked at that and said, see, that's what I'm talking about. So there's a whole lot of different reasons and they all kind of tie into each other. But I'd hope that, you know, Holly Cairns kind of decided, do you know what, I'm going to go and and put a... Put a a face to the to the piece and to the name. And I kind of hope that by people saying, look, this is the reality of it, that maybe it would encourage us to call it out where maybe we see it in our personal lives or, you know, at a dinner table or wherever it may be to just say, look, you can't be going on like that. Because I've heard people saying, you know, oh, if I had that person, I'd wring their neck, like I'd, I'd break their back or this kind of stuff. You're like, well, really? Really? <laughs> That's not the answer. So I don't know. There's a whole load of different... 
I do think we need to have an honest conversation about anonymity online. I really do. Um, and I know that a lot of people will be against getting rid of that. And, I, and I, there's some good reasons. I totally understand. But if the cost is kind of this hate-fueled society where we all look at each other and somebody who feels like I'd love to say this thing to them, see somebody else saying it, then they band together in a community and then it's it's a whole it's a whole deal, basically. So maybe that conversation needs to be had. Yeah, it seems to me there's a difference between anonymity and no accountability. And the two things don't necessarily have to be the same. And that might be something. And I, there's a whole range of things worth looking at. Even listening to you there, it occurs to me, why do uh, public figures, female politicians, why do, why do their names have to come up in court? You know, we have provision in other in other types of legal circumstances where people's privacy is respected and their names aren't released. So it seems to me there's a whole range of things and I think it's good that that, that conversation is starting. We're going to take a quick break, but before we do, let me just mention to listeners that this weekend, uh, January the 28th, the final instalment of the Irish Times' series in association with Aaron's, that's the North-South uh, project, uh, is being published and it's got lots of interesting information so i'd recommend uh, that to you and of course if you're a subscriber you get the whole lot of it so why not subscribe if you haven't subscribed yet but we do want to have a look back on this joint project between the irish times and Aaron's, which has been taking place over the last two or three months about questions about irish unity the constitutional future of the island the relationship between north and south so we're planning uh, an ask me anything and we will be doing that at some point in about two weeks' time or slightly less. So if you do have any questions for that, because we'll have all the people who've been involved in it uh, in to answer those questions, you can send them to politicspodcast at irishtimes.com and try and get them in before the middle of next week, I think. That should be fine. So that's politicspodcast at irishtimes.com. We'll be right back after this. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less in similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. And welcome back. Cormac and Jen are still here with us. Cormac, in terms of the real problems facing this government, the most significant one, I think, is housing. And some pretty grim and bleak news for the government on that front in our own newspaper this week. Predictions of a shortfall in the amount of houses built and much more houses are going to need to be built than we even thought in the first place. Yeah, I mean, our colleague Jack Corgan-Jones, who reported this, I think, on Thursday, that the government established a housing commission reckons that between 42,000 and 62,000 homes per year will be needed up to 2050, which as we all know, is, is a lot more than has been set out in the government's Housing for All plan, where they're talking about an average of 33,000 homes f- per year. Um, now, 
you know, they'll say these targets are under review and it's highly likely that the, the target will be increased. But uh, with, in that comes the difficulty of, well, how do you reach an increased target? Because given that we haven't yet reached the 33,000 threshold, the government was was heralding reaching 29,000 uh, homes there for 2022. They didn't reach the, the target for social housing or for, for affordable housing, but but overall, the more more units were delivered, I suppose, but uh, how do you get from twenty nine thousand to to forty two thousand or or the higher end of the scale sixty two thousand? It's I mean it's a it's a massive challenge. You don't is the answer. You don't. It's not going to happen. Yeah, you don't, and compounded by the 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 refugee crisis as well, with with uh, you know a population of greater than Waterford City arriving last year, uh, the same the same expected again this year. So it's very very hard to see how how they are going to square that circle. Uh, in the next couple of years, if the, in the time, certainly in the time remaining left for the government, but geez, even in, over the course of a decade, how would they how would they solve this? It's it's very difficult to see how it, how it'll be done. Jen, in, in, on Wednesday's podcast, we were casting forward to the next elections and how they might possibly pan out and uh, what what impact various things might have upon them. And we didn't actually talk about the sort of issues of the day, but I mean, we've always said on this podcast, going back a long time now, that you know, housing is going to be the key issue that will drive uh, the results of the next election. So this is uh, bad news for the governing parties. It is, yeah, and and it comes as no great surprise, I think. Actually being able to see the figures and, and as Jack's piece outlined, it was um, unpublished research by the Housing Commission showing that basically that Ireland needs up to 62,000 homes built every year until 2050. And we know that's like you said, that's just it's not going to happen. And how do we know it's not going to happen? Because it hasn't happened and there's no sign of it happening this year. And actually what we've seen was kind of a slowdown in commencements and also a slowdown in residential construction activity last year, which kind of puts the, the alarm signals on for especially the middle part of this year, that there's a squeeze there. Um, also, you know, one of the scenarios that that piece that Jack, that research Jack talked about was kind of the population growth. And it showed that by that mid-century point, the population would be between 6.25 million and 7 million people. Um, and that on that baseline, it's anywhere between 42,000 and 60,000 homes per year. Marry this with the increase in migration. So for the last couple of years, migration, and this is, by the way, completely excluding what's happened uh, in Ukraine, migration has been more than 10% above the high migration scenario. So I can see a situation whereby, and we can kind of see this already um, with the protests about um, accommodation for refugees, I can see a situation whereby even in the next election, it comes down to housing, but also comes down to which parties will be strongest on um, uh, tackling kind of the issues that people are raising in relation to the pressures on communities. And we see the Sinn Féin are kind of getting it in the, in the neck a little bit from some of their supporters. They're being accused of kind of not being strong enough because their public representatives are very much kind of saying, we believe that everybody should have a space in a view of anger, you should direct it towards the government. And I'm interested in the impact this has on politics in terms of migration. Yeah, I think so. I think that's very interesting. And there's another question, which which perhaps, you know, we're too short-sighted and we don't look at it enough, Cormac, is we're talking about, you know, five-year cycles, 10-year cycles. We're talking about all the way up to the middle of this of this century. God knows where we'd all be at that point. But Sinn Féin, if it achieves its objective and it finds itself in power, it's going to be holding this particular baby in just a couple of years' time. And it has, uh, it's uh, talked a very good talk about how it will radically change the approach it takes. But it's going to be faced with these same 
seemingly insuperable challenges and uh, it might end find not for not the first Irish political party to do this find that it's over promised and will deeply disappoint its voters. Well, I'm kind of waiting for the, the day that we hear the new Minister for Housing, Owen Brennan, saying this is not a problem we're going to be able to solve overnight. As many of our housing ministers have said in recent years, um, I think in, in fairness to Sinn Féin, I, 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 in recent months, I think O'Brien has, has talked about how it could take the guts of a decade to, uh, to get back on track in the, in the housing realm. So they're, they're, they're looking at a two government, uh, strategy, I think, to, to try and, try and solve the problem. But, but it is, it is, uh, I mean, it's talk a good talk. You're right. And I mean, it, they have a very impressive spokesman in Owen O'Brien, but, uh, once, once he's in the driving seat, I, I suspect it's not going to be as simple as has been, uh, made out in, in the last, over the last couple of years. No, I think that's definitely true. We're nearly going to wrap it up there, but uh, in this podcast every Friday, we do like to draw your attention to articles which have caught our fancy over the course of the last week or so. I'm going to go first this time because I've got two articles, but they're on exactly the same subject. It's a sort of an ongoing debate which uh, has been ventilated on the opinion page is of the Irish Times this week. And uh, it may seem slightly esoteric to some listeners, but it's close to my heart because the Barclay Library was a place where I had some useful naps while I was a student at Trinity College. So, uh, so I still think fondly of it, and it's named after the uh, the eminent philosopher of of the same name, who was a slaveholder. And the question has arisen in recent years, uh, as it has in many universities around the world, about these historical figures, about whether statues should be removed or, in this case, names should be changed. And two uh, eminent. Um, Trinity academics, actually, Nigel Bigger, the uh, former professor of theology at Trinity College Dublin, argued earlier this week that no, uh, that this was ahistorical, that we needed to look at these things in context and not basically erase history because we didn't like things that had happened in the past. And Philomena Mullen, who is in the Department of Sociology there in Trinity, um, argued to some extent to the contrary, I think, or at least she said that it was ahistorical to presume that somebody like Berkeley didn't bear responsibility for his acts. Uh, And while, as I say, some people may find this quite esoteric, it's a rare cropping up in Ireland uh, of of a debate which has really caused a lot of ructions in other countries, in in the United Kingdom and the United States in particular, and one I I think we can expect to see more of. And you never know if uh, if our listeners are interested enough, I might drag this particular argument into the studio for for a podcast at, at some time or another. Cormac, what took your fancy? It's it's not so much in the political sphere, but I suppose the politics of sports. I have been uh, following the. I'm, I'm, not, I'm no GAA fan, but I've been following the controversy over the 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 uh, the football final there the other day, where Kilmacud Croaks had 16 men on the pitch at, in the in the closing minutes, and will there will they or won't they have a have a replay? Um, against Glenn and and the onus on on demanding uh, retribution or you know you know recompense seems to be on Glenn and with the GA authorities kind of washing their hands of it. Um, I thought we had a very effective front page picture on on Tuesday with with the the Kilmacud Croaks players numbered in in and around the the goals and uh, yeah it's just it just shows how how these issues uh, you know the, the politics of these things can can be quite uh, fraught in in other spheres as well as inside Leinster House. Yeah indeed I think it's extremely unfair that they're Glen are required to make an official protest you know the GAA should put its big boy trousers on and make a decision itself and what about you Jen? I was kind of taken by a piece that kind of ties in a little bit what we were saying earlier on by Cathy Sheridan um, this week she was talking about how in early January she was 
talking with a small business owner and she kind of just asked, you know, how are things? And uh, he kind of paused and said, you know, not good. People have become unbelievably aggressive and impatient and looking for a row. And then she talked about a teacher who she had, uh, had also been speaking to who was talking about the anger of parents and how she would have traditionally have gone for maybe a promotion or, or you know, further her own career path, but that's maybe not what she'd be considering now. And it's just talking about that impact that like free range anger has on people's lives and how there's so much more of it nowadays. But the, the, the takeaway I got from it is actually the vast majority of us are just trying to get through the day in as peaceful way as we can. Um, and I think people who kind of spew hatred either online or, or elsewhere to like check out staff or you know, healthcare staff, people on the front line, they are in the minority and they do take up the loudest amount of, you know, of, of the airwaves or or what's that phrase? An empty vessel makes the most noise. But I just thought that the article was really interesting reflection on how somewhere between the financial crash and the election of Trump, there's been this kind of explosion and this normalization of rage and aggression and the effect that has on society, which is, you know, corrosive effectively. No, absolutely. I agree with that. We all need to show a little bit more empathy and learn some bloody manners as well. Uh, on that on that uh, admonitory note, we'll leave it there. Thanks very much to, to Jenna Cormack, our producers, Declan Conlon, uh, our engineers, JJ Verna. We're going to be back after the weekend very soon. We'll talk to you then. Thanks for listening. <laughs>